Welcome to the fifth episode of our podcast's first season, Scary But True Campfire Stories, brought to you by Dudes Camping, hosted and narrated by Matthew S. Newbold. Thanks for listening, and please spread the word, tell your friends, tell your congressmen, post it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and any other social media outlet that will fact-check your grandma's cookie recipe. Our goal is to share true stories of the strange, supernatural, ghostly, and unexplained as we gather around the virtual campfire. Or maybe you are sitting around a real campfire right now. Maybe you have a strange but true story that you'd like to share. Email us at dudescampingstories at gmail.com with your own Bigfoot, UFO, ghost, or unexplained supernatural story, and we'll consider it for broadcast. Don't forget to visit us on YouTube and Facebook at Dudes Camping. This next tale is a true story that happened in Las Vegas the night of the shooting. For the safety of the people involved, we have decided to leave the contributor's name anonymous. Was there a cover-up involved in the deadliest mass shooting in American history? Is there information that is being withheld from the public? This account will have you asking more questions than a Common Core math student. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the Vegas shooting conspiracy. On the night of October 1st, 2017, the worst mass shooting in modern American history took place in Las Vegas as Stephen Paddock opened fire on the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival, killing 60 people and injuring another 867. A little over a year later, the investigation led the experts to this conclusion. There was no single or clear motivating factor driving his killing rampage and subsequent suicide, closing the investigation in January 2019. They claimed that there was no manifesto, no suicide note, no piece of evidence that would explain the attack. With all the lack of evidence, Investigators were somehow able to come to the conclusion that part of Paddock's motivation was his desire to die by suicide and to attain a certain degree of infamy via a mass casualty attack. If you're wondering how they came to this conclusion with absolutely no evidence, you are not alone. The lack of transparency with the investigation has led to all sorts of conspiracy theories which is par for the course. It's as if they are intentionally vague in order to stir up the public into contriving the most outrageous scenarios and surreptitious plans by our government so they can lump all of them, even the truth, into a straw man to show how ridiculous they are. All the while, feeding the public with just enough information to completely forget it happened in just three years. In an age where facts are filtered through a media that is intent on shaping people's opinions rather than informing, it was amazing to watch how they handled or mishandled this tragedy. Look at how little we are told about Paddock. He targeted a country music festival, mostly conservatives, had several hundred images of child pornography on the hard drives of four computers recovered in his hotel room, in which they ended up arresting his brother for, one of the hard drives was removed by Paddock and somehow never recovered? Yeah, right. 
and very little video footage of Paddock gambling in Las Vegas was released. A city that has a camera on every slot machine. There is a truth that every single parent can understand. When you let your kids play, they can be loud and rowdy, sometimes annoying. But when they suddenly become silent, then you know that something is wrong. This is the silence that we have experienced from investigators and from the industrial media complex. What is going on? Is it any wonder that the conspiracy theories would abound in this day and age when even mainstream media manipulates facts and tortures data until it confesses to anything? Experts will tell us that we cannot rely upon our own memories from a tragic event because they are subject to suggestion over time and not reliable. I would suggest the same is true about our corrupt governments and media. During a traumatic event, the brain interprets information very differently. It has to make quick decisions based upon the stimulus that it receives and assumptions that are made, whether they are correct or not. During the event in Las Vegas, there were several conflicting reports that were not heard on the alphabet news. More than one shooter, bombs going off, attacks on the ground, etc. These were all people interpreting the events that were going on around them and making assumptions so that they could take direct action in the crisis. It does not mean that they were true. I've been a Las Vegas resident for 15 years and was not on the strip when this tragedy took place, but this story is from somebody who was, someone I have known for a long time. He tells the story to the best of his ability to remember, but it's not the story or the fact that I know him that makes this credible. It is the event that follows. A musician will spend most of his young days practicing and sacrificing social events in the hopes that someday he or she could make a living and do what they love. All the work and effort that one puts into a career in music, even with no guarantee that it will ever pay off. Anybody can go to school and get a business degree or a communications degree or even become a doctor if they have the money and the determination but certain arts you either have or don't have, certain skills you will never be able to learn no matter how much determination you have. Music is definitely one of those. And in my line of work, add being able to sing and being personable with the crowd. I've been playing guitar and singing since I was 12 years old and learned to communicate with audiences by watching local bands. The better the rapport with the audience, the better following the band got, and I took notice. I became so good at my craft that I was asked to join a very popular band in Las Vegas that had a residency on the Las Vegas Strip. I had been performing with this band since the mid-90s, and people would come to Vegas oftentimes just to watch us. I had also become somewhat known for my ability to handle my liquor. That's another skill that you cannot learn. I'm a tall dude, so usually three double shots of Grey Goose vodka in between sets was enough to get me going. One infamous night, I had 16 shots of Grey Goose vodka and was still able to perform the last set without anyone noticing except the band. It was the end of my work week, and Sundays are difficult because most people travel to and from Vegas, so we don't get the crowds from the weekend. 
We had just finished our first set with a romping rendition of Summer of 69 by Brian Adams, and somebody had bought me a beer. I don't drink beer, so I left the bottle on stage by my guitar stand, hoping that it would just go away. It did make me thirsty for a nice chilled shot of Grey Goose, though, so the band headed over to the open bar outside the pizzeria restaurant near the entrance. Our bass player was an avid conspiracy theorist and was always telling me how lizard people were running our government, 9-11 was an inside job, the moon landing was fake, or that it was actually a hologram. His latest kick was how the earth was really flat, and I just need to watch some YouTube video to be convinced. I'm telling you, Chad, if the earth was round, how would the water stay on the earth? It would fall off the bottom. That's not how gravity works, John. I said as I clinked his glass of beer with my short glass of vodka and drank half the triple shot, setting it down on the bar. The ball is spinning. Have you ever seen a wet ball spinning? John confidently continued. The water will fly off of it. It doesn't get pulled to the middle. I looked at him in amazement. Are you saying that gravity is a conspiracy too? Maybe. What I am saying is that I felt my phone vibrating in my pocket about the same time that my eyes wandered up to the TV hanging behind the bar. The sound was incomprehensible due to the ambient volume of rowdy casino-goers and partiers, but I could make out the words on the lower third of the constant news channel. Active shooter in Las Vegas. I stopped John and pointed at the headline. Every other month, there was some school shooting or terror threat so it seemed like a distant event, until the scroll said that it was at the music festival which was right down the street at Mandalay Bay. I pulled my phone out and looked at all the texts I received. Is everybody okay? Have you guys seen anything? What's going on down there? I didn't have time to respond to all of them, and we had about ten minutes left on our break, so I downed the rest of the drink. John took a big chug of his beer, leaving about a third of it behind, and we made our way to the venue. A few more texts came in, and one said that they heard an announcement on CNN or MSNBC that there were multiple shooters on the strip now. We were standing outside the door to our bar, and I leaned in to ask one of the bartenders, Did you hear there's a shooting down at the music festival? I heard that, he said. Did you hear anything about multiple shooters? I asked him. Nope, I haven't heard anything about that. That's peculiar, I thought. We haven't seen anything in here yet. Hopefully nothing happens. About a minute later, I heard a commotion coming from the entrance closest to the bar. Sounded like a bunch of children yelling and running towards a playground. I looked in the vicinity and saw a crowd of people panicking and running towards my direction. The terrified look on their faces and disoriented eyes told me that they were running away from something. As they got closer, I saw another group of people streaming down the steps from the second floor. They were yelling that somebody had a gun and was shooting people in the parking garage. Hundreds of people running aimlessly from something that left them petrified. It looked like a scene from War of the Worlds. I watched a large number peel off and barricade themselves in the restrooms. I didn't really feel anything except shock at the situation due to the fear on their faces. I went inside where we were playing, and the manager said, 
We are shutting down the bar. With a confused look, I watched as all the people in the room instinctively began to get down under the tables or on their knees. The drummer knelt behind his drum set, and I just stood there in disbelief, not scared, just astonished. The large group of people had dissipated into the casino or barricaded themselves in the bathroom, so when I saw movement from a group of men all wearing black and carrying automatic rifles, I began to freak out. I tried ducking, but I'm a pretty tall guy, so it didn't really work well for me. I watched these men creep in the casino and pass the entrance to our bar. As they got closer, I could see that they were Las Vegas SWAT officers, so I was somewhat relieved. They were crouched in a tight formation, pointing their rifles in every direction like they were looking for the predator, like they were ready to start firing at an alien in the trees. One of the officers looked over at me, and I realized that I was the only one standing in the bar. Sir, get the hell down! He growled at me from behind his weapon. I was unsuccessful at crouching before, so I quickly looked around the room and made a split-second decision to leap over the bar and hide behind the bartender pit. I jumped on the bar and slid for a good ten feet before I glided off the side and onto the floor below, landing on my elbow. It was good that I didn't land on my head, but I ended up with an olecranon fracture. This scene might have been comical if the situation were not so serious. I lifted myself to my knees, rubbing the pain out of my elbow, and looked around to see if anybody noticed my bar-slide tumble. Everybody behind the bar was in a daze and didn't even notice, so I made a run for the cooler with my head down like I was about to board a helicopter. I got inside the cooler, and with some sense of protection, I saw about eight cocktail waitresses had the same idea. We were crammed into this cold refrigerator, not knowing what the heck was happening. I overheard one of the waitresses tell another that she saw somebody drop off a package in the casino and that it turned out to be a bomb. Somebody said that they heard shots being fired in the parking lot. Every possibility was evolving into warlike scenarios because we had very little information as it was happening. We briefed each other for another ten minutes before there was a knock on the door by one of the bartenders. You guys get out here, he said. They're going to tell us what to do. We all came out of the cooler as a man in complete SWAT gear with his rifle hanging off his shoulder was loudly giving out instructions. Everybody, you need to exit the casino immediately. If you have a room in the hotel, go there now. If not, find one of the exits and proceed out the doors. This is an emergency. No kidding. The band members and a few of the waitresses walked out through the employee exit and through the loading docks into the rear of the hotel. They didn't tell us what to do once we got outside, so I decided to break off from the group and walk over to the adjacent hotel across the street. I pulled out my phone as I was walking and looked at about 15 more texts. I entered the casino next to ours, and the first thing that struck me was that everything was normal. There was no panicking, no SWAT teams, no rushing crowds. The casino was full of people gambling and partying like nothing even happened. I made some calls to let everybody know I was all right and that I would find a way to get home. I walked outside towards the parking lot, where the group claimed that there was a gunman shooting people. I didn't hear anything, so I figured the SWAT team had taken care of things by now. 
They had not shut down the streets and freeways yet, so I was able to drive out of the parking lot and make my way home. Unfortunately, an unbelievable amount of innocent people never made it home. We were left with countless unanswered questions that I assumed would be answered in time. I stepped through the front door and realized how lucky I was to be able to sit on my couch and hug my wife that evening. October 1st would go down as the worst mass shooting in American history. The shooting was over, but I had no idea that the drama was just about to begin for me. The next day, I had to drive back to the venue to pick up my guitar and everything else I had left behind. I walked onto the stage and saw that the drummer was tearing down all his equipment. I grabbed my guitar and put it in the case. As I was rolling up a cable, the bar manager walked into the room and said hello. That was crazy what happened last night, huh? I told him. Yeah, they're saying that it was a single gunman. My friend at the hospital said that he can't believe it. It looks like a war zone. Around a thousand people were shot. Jeez. Doesn't sound like one person would be able to do all that, I remarked. That's what my wife said. Anyway, since you are here, the special officer wants to ask the band about what you saw last night, so if you have some time, I can get him down here. Sure, let me get this over with. I bemoaned. I finished gathering up my gear and helped the drummer load his then sat in the bar and waited for the special agent. The bar was only open at night, so there were no other patrons and the place was vacant. After 20 minutes, the special agent came in the lounge accompanied by two other guys. He looked like a typical agent in civilian clothes, like the kind of guy that would steal your parking space and walk away talking on his cell phone. The other two were just ornaments to add to his feigned importance. FBI or CIA or SWAT or whoever this guy was, he never told me. You must be Chad. He extended his hand. I shook it and felt his grip tighten, as if he was trying to show me who was in charge by his firm handshake, even though I had at least eight inches and eighty pounds on this guy. He released and gave me a sly smile like he knew something I didn't. So, tell me about last night. I felt a little strange about the way he said this, like I was under investigation. I guess he was so used to questioning criminals that he treated everybody like one. Well, we were on break, I began, and I started getting texts about the shooting, so we walked back to the bar and I saw a whole bunch of people running from that entrance over there. I pointed at the door where the commotion was last night and they were running down the stairs screaming that there was a shooter in the parking lot. That didn't happen. He stopped me as if he was waiting for me to say this. I just looked at him in amazement. He didn't say they were just hysterical or they just heard the shots and were mistaken. He told me that what I saw did not happen. I was beginning to dislike this arrogant prick. Well... That is what they were yelling as about a hundred or two hundred people came running. That did not happen. He interrupted me again with the same lifeless expression on his face like he was trying to perform a Jedi mind trick. This time I responded with irritation in my voice. Well, something happened, I barked at him. Why would all these people be running from the parking garage? His expression went from arrogant to stern, 
looking at me with a cold threat in his eyes and said, That didn't happen. Whatever, I conceded. Chad, he continued as if he made his point and was moving on to the next lesson. Were you drinking last night? What the heck was this guy getting at, I thought. Am I the one on trial here? I had one or two, yeah, I replied. He threw a look up at his sidekick, and the other guy nodded, wrote something on a notepad, and the agent looked back at me. Was this your beer sitting by your equipment last night? He asked accusingly. No, I defended. I don't drink beer. So that wasn't your beer? He asked, making more of a statement than a question. What did you drink? I had a chilled shot of vodka, I said. What does this have to do with the shooting last night? I asked, frustrated. His eyes narrowed, and without raising his voice, he scolded me like a child. You were drinking last night. What you saw did not happen. Do you understand that? I was taken aback by his unwillingness to believe me, or even allow me to believe it myself. How strange. Fine, I conceded. That's all, Chad. You can go now. Thanks for your time. He said to me, and all three men left the bar, leaving me in complete disbelief of the interview. He never even asked me about anything else. We thought that the dynamics of the Vegas crowds would absolutely change after this. Maybe people would be afraid to go out and have a good time due to the massacre. But we were wrong. Nothing really changed, and we went back to playing music three days later. The band was performing and people were dancing just like before when I spotted a woman wearing an evening gown walking towards the stage. It was a casual bar where most people were wearing t-shirts and jeans, so she looked completely out of place. I didn't notice the man who was with her until they got up to the front of the stage. He was wearing a tuxedo like they had just returned from the opera. The stage was only about a foot above the floor, so the man leaned in and asked me what I was drinking. I was playing rhythm guitar to the classic song Wonderwall by Oasis, and the keyboardist was singing, so I yelled above the stage noise, A shot of chilled Grey Goose vodka! He nodded, and they both walked over to the bar. About twenty minutes later, he came back with a clear rocks glass and set it on my guitar amp. He nodded to me, and I nodded back to express my thanks. After the song, I grabbed the glass and drank it all in one gulp before starting the ever-famous Sweet Home Alabama guitar riff to the exploding applause of the dancing crowd. We had about two songs left in the set when I saw the man in the tuxedo walk back up to the stage and set another shot on my amp. Without acknowledging me, he quickly turned and went back to his wife on the far side of the bar. I didn't think much of it as I drank the shot during a guitar break in the song. We finished our set, stepped off the stage, and walked out of the bar. That is the last thing I remember. Until throwing up on myself, lying on the floor of the restaurant across from our venue an hour after we finished. Everything was fuzzy, and John was staring down at me. Maybe we should get him to the hospital, I remember him saying. I think we should try to get him home first, the keyboardist countered. The rest of the band proceeded to put me on a luggage cart and squeeze me into John's car. He drove me home 
and dragged me into my house where my wife looked at me in shock. I've never seen him like this before, she said. Was he drinking? John looked at her and said, I don't think so. I think it's something else. They decided not to take me to the hospital, and I fell asleep on the couch for a good twelve hours. The next day, I woke up around two in the afternoon, which is not like me at all. I am usually up at 8.30, even after performing until 3 a.m. I called John to see what had happened because I had no recollection of the previous night after our first break. He drove over to my house and showed me some videos he had taken on his phone. I had somehow played the last two sets, but was completely out of control. I was playing the wildest guitar solos and saying the most outrageous things on the microphone. At first, John assumed I was drunk and started recording because he thought it was hilarious. But after watching me more closely, he realized that I wasn't drunk. I was drugged. I had been drugged, and the only two drinks I had that night were from the overly dressed couple that seemed out of place in the bar. Who were they? Why would they have drugged my drink? I'm a pretty big guy, and I wonder if they drugged the first shot but it wasn't enough. So that's why they brought up the second one? Or was the first shot to gain my confidence and the second shot was meant to send me a message? Did they intend to scare me? Or was their intent to take me out of the picture? They may have tried to kill me, but because of my size, I survived? After playing in the same venue for 20 years, you learn to spot the kind of people who do that sort of thing. This couple did not fit the profile, and that's why it makes no sense. Some people might not see the connection to the shooting, but why would the special officer be so adamant about what I saw or didn't see? After all, he did ask me what I drank. Why would he ask that? He threatened me. Was this the follow-through? The shooting itself doesn't make any sense, and this incident makes even less sense. I didn't think that the government would go to the extreme of drugging or killing somebody just to silence a tiny, insignificant detail. Or maybe it wasn't such an insignificant detail after all. Like I said before, I am not into conspiracy theories, but after this whole thing, I am convinced that there is more going on than we are told. The Las Vegas shooting has vanished from our country's collective memory faster than anything I've ever seen. John and I had some long discussions about things after this. I actually think he might be onto something with all the weird beliefs and conspiracy conjectures. There are enough unanswered questions and mistrust in our government concerning world events to make critical thinking people wonder what is true and what is false. Maybe a lot of what we think we know is just a series of conspiracies. Except the Flat Earth. That is just ridiculous. Thanks for listening to Scary But True Campfire Stories presented by Dudes Camping. Narrated by Matthew S. Newbold. You can purchase audiobooks from Matthew S. Newbold on Audible and iTunes. Email us at dudescampingstories at gmail to see how you can receive a free copy. Please hit the like button if you enjoyed this story and leave a comment. 
Any character's likeness is pure coincidence. We do not condone conspiracy theories, but we are pretty sure the Vatican has a flat earth globe hidden away in its secret vault. Until next time, we will see you around the campfire.